Hello and welcome to Hostile Worlds, the podcast that takes you to places you'd die to see and places you'd die if you saw. You're aboard a ship called the Tardigrade. It's an all-purpose vehicle that can fly, float, dive and dig through any environment in the universe, no matter how hot or cold it might be. We're on our way to Titan, the biggest moon of Saturn, and the only cosmic body other than Earth that we know for certain has actual lakes and seas on its surface. I'm your host, Matthew McLean, and if you haven't heard episode 1 yet, I'd advise you to go and check that out first. We'll wait right here for you until you catch up. If you've already heard episode 1 though, you'll hopefully remember our example of the peppercorn and the basketball. The basketball represented the size of the sun, whilst the peppercorn was a scale comparison of Earth. The distance between the two was six full car lengths, parked nose to tail along the side of the street we were standing in. So Titan is even smaller than Earth, about half the size in fact. That means we'll have to split our peppercorn in half, and we'll need to take it further away from the sun too a lot further. Whilst Earth is about 93 million miles away from the Sun, Titan is a massive 886 million miles away from it. That's nearly 10 times the distance. So instead of six parked cars between the two, we're now looking at a distance of 57 car lengths. And as you can imagine, being that far away from the Sun means that Titan is cold very cold. Ah, that's a lovely coat. Thanks, Sarah. I think it'll come in handy. Um, not real fur, I hope? Certainly not. Huh, <laughs> What's that you're reading, anyway? This? Oh, it's called Lando Lakes, Secrets from Titan Seas, written by a resident expert for this voyage, Alex Hayes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, remind me, who is this Alex, then? He's an assistant professor at Cornell University in the astronomy department. He specialises in solar system exploration, and he's part of the Cassini Mission to Saturn research team. Ah, yes, so he knows what he's talking about, then, hmm? Very much so. Have a wee read of this. It's a section he's written about visualising what it would be like to actually stand on the surface of Titan. (laughs) Imagine yourself standing at the shoreline of a picturesque freshwater lake surrounded by soft grass and leafy trees. Perhaps you're enjoying a peaceful lakefront vacation. In the calm water, you see the mirror-like reflection of a cloudy sky just before it begins to rain. Now, let the surrounding vegetation disappear, leaving behind a landscape you might more reasonably expect to see in the rocky deserts of the southwestern United States. The temperature is dropping too, all the way down to a bone-chilling minus 295 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about minus 180 degrees Celsius, or 92 Kelvins. The air around you feels thicker, although you yourself feel seven times lighter, courtesy of reduced gravity. 
As the clouds pass overhead, you notice that the lake's surface now reflects a hazy orange sky with the brightness of early twilight. After the clouds have moved on, you finally begin to feel rain hitting your hands. However, the rain falls much slower than normal and the drops are bigger, with large splashes following each impact. The ground you stand on is a loose, sandy mixture of broken up water ice and organic material, like plastic shavings or styrofoam beads. On closer inspection, the lake doesn't hold water, but a liquid not unlike natural gas. And you'd be better holding your breath because the surrounding air has no oxygen. If you can picture all of this, Welcome to the surface of Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Well, that um, that certainly sets the scene, doesn't it? <laughs> I feel cold already. <laughs> That's why I've got the fur coat on. The fake fur coat. As long as it does the job. Huh. So, are you going to ask Alex lots of questions about Titan before we get there? Already did. I spoke to him on our radio thing. Listen, we really do need a better name for that, don't we? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Any suggestions? We're just, um, radio? Mm, needs to sound more high-tech. Uh, uh, comms interface, maybe? That'll do. Oh, happy to be of service. What was I saying again? Uh, well, you mentioned something called the Cassini mission. Oh, yeah. Well, that's actually a really good place to start this episode. Here, let me put my presenter's hat on for this. Oh, that's an ace hat. <laughs> it really goes well with the uh, faux fur coat thing. You sure? I don't look a bit weird, do I? There's a bit, but um, as you said, uh, it's all audio, eh? Right? You know? Huh? Yep, I suppose. So... Historically, we didn't know very much about the surface of Titan. Because it's surrounded by this thick atmosphere of orange clouds, scientists and astronomers were never able to get a proper look at it from afar. It was just floating there, eluding us like some big mysterious rusty snooker ball. But in October 1997, the unmanned Cassini-Huygens spacecraft was launched, and it was heading for the outer solar system, to visit the neighbourhood of Saturn and Titan. The spacecraft had a long to-do list of missions and tasks to be carried out over the next 20 years. The mission would finally come to an end by taking a dive into Saturn's atmosphere in September 2017. But it was back in July 2004 that Cassini originally entered the orbit of Saturn and got to work in the region. A few months later, in December, the Huygens part of the ship, which was actually an atmospheric probe built by the European Space Agency, detached itself from the main body of the spacecraft. The Huygens probe began its descent towards Titan, where it would penetrate the haze layer and land on its surface. Finally, about 350 years after Titan's discovery, mankind was about to get a look at exactly what lay underneath those mysterious clouds. I remember this well as a young sci-fi enthusiast, 
I'd been obsessing over some really far-fetched artist's impersonations of what it might look like on the surface of time. There was one that still sticks in my mind. It depicted towering Lovecraftian monsters fighting dinosaur-style creatures as a giant volcano erupted behind them. I mean, okay, it probably wasn't endorsed by anyone with a scientific background, but still, I was just thinking, what are they going to find out there? Those running the mission had probably ruled out the Huygens probe getting a ringside seat to Cthulhu wrestling with a stegosaurus. But one thing they did have no idea about was what the probe was actually going to land on when it touched down on Titan. And that was something I definitely wanted to ask Alex Hayes about. Here's a clip from a recent conversation over the radio th- uh, comms interface. Ooh, another cassette type. Mm-hmm. So the story of the Huygens probe descent into Titan has multiple elements that are really fascinating. The first one is the probe itself. So Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system, the only moon with a substantial atmosphere. And because of that atmosphere, we couldn't see down to the surface. But we knew Titan was interesting, first, because it has an atmosphere, and second, because methane is in that atmosphere, and methane is actually destroyed in the upper atmosphere of Titan. And in about 10 to 100 million years, all of the methane that's in Titan's atmosphere would be destroyed by high-energy particles from the sun, which means there has to be a source. And in the process of destroying that methane, which is a a chemical process known as photolysis, you generate higher-order organics. The one that you produce the most of is ethane, and it turns out at Titan's surface, ethane is a liquid. And so, because we couldn't see down to the surface, and we knew that over billions of years, if this atmosphere was present, first of all, you have to replenish that methane that's depleted every 10 to 100 million years from something, and you have to then store the products of destroying that methane, the higher order organics that are formed, the the predominant one being ethane, which is a liquid. And so there was a possibility that Titan was actually a global ethane ocean. And so Titan could have been an ocean world. And this was the picture we had of Titan when Cassini was launched. And the Huygens probe, which was uh, created by the European Space Agency as their contribution to the mission, was made to either land on a solid surface or to float on a hydrocarbon sea because they didn't know what Titan's surface was made of. A global ocean world, just like that famous Kevin Costner film. uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's the one. Can you imagine the excitement here though? I know I've just banged on about how far away Titan is, but in the grand scheme of things, it's right here in our backyard, in our own solar system. And and a mere 13 years ago, we didn't know what it was really like underneath those thick cloud layers, eh? And people had been working on the Cassini project since the early 80s. Think how they must have felt as the Huygens probe entered Titan's atmosphere and began to descend. It was pure exploration, pure discovery. We had no idea what it was going to find. Was it going to land on a solid surface or was it going to land in a large moon-wide sea of ethane and methane, and the probe was made to either float in the methane-ethane sea or land on a solid surface. And as it broke through the haze layers that are generated by breaking methane up in the upper atmosphere, what it discovered and found was a landscape very similar to Earth. 
So, hang on, just just to make sure I'm following this. So, Cassini is the spacecraft itself, mm -hmm. and the Huygens probe pretty much hitched a lift up there and jumped out when they flew past Titan. That's about the size of it, yeah. But it didn't end up landing in a in a big ocean of liquid natural gas in the end. It didn't, no. In fact, the Huygens probe didn't actually confirm the existence of these at all. It wasn't until early 2007 that scientists finally announced definite evidence of lakes filled with methane because of the images they were getting back from repeated Cassini flybys. So, back in 2005, what were the Huygens probe's first views of Titan as it made its way down under the clouds? Well, Alex told me that the landscape itself was a mixture of small hills and rocky flat plains. So, just to set the scene in your mind, it was immediately noticeable that the hills were covered with carved channels which looked like they'd been formed by flowing liquids, in other words, by rain. Off in the distance there were these large black streaks running over the landscape. Those turned out to be hydrocarbon dunes filled with organic sediments. The probe itself landed on a flat plain at the edge of one of the hill slopes. The ground was covered with fist-sized cobbles, which scientists suspect are made of water ice, although they can't be absolutely certain about that. Another thing they can't be certain about is how these cobbles came to be rounded. Maybe that happened by being swept along a stream bed, or maybe it was the weather conditions on the surface that shaped them. The one thing we can be certain about though, after seeing these images sent back to us from the Huygens probe, is that Titan, with its channels, dunes and plains, looks very similar to many of the desert regions we'd find back on Earth. Huygens was able to continue sending data for about an hour and a half, after which the rest of the images we'd go on to receive from Titan would be courtesy of Cassini, flying by far overhead, scanning down with its radar vision. We know now for sure that there's much more to Titan than what those initial images showed us. And now that the tardigrades making that same journey down onto the surface that Huygens did back in 2005, it will soon be time for us to get out there and explore for ourselves. Oh, exciting! Right, I better let you go and land the thing then, Sarah. Otherwise it's going to be a short-lived podcast series. <laughs> yes, on it! Um... Are you, are you coming to watch? Or? No, actually, I'll uh, be in the bar. There's a bar on the ship? There is now. Right, we've got under this big old cloud layer. Some hills in the distance. Um, 
excuse the lack of official sounding astronaut jargon but we're here and uh, i guess i should say a welcome to a titan brilliant work sarah i barely spilled a drop there we'll get together in the briefing room in five minutes okay got it see you there So, here we are on Titan. Last time I set an audio drama here, it didn't really end well for the characters. Fortunately for you guys, we're trying to stick closer to facts than we are to fiction. Hooray for facts! Colin, what was that famous Marilyn Monroe quote again? Um, the first casualty of war is always the truth. That's the one. But that unfortunately means that those fake fur coats are brought for us aren't really fit for purpose. Something wrong, Sarah? Well, it's just that I put all these little badges on mine. That's okay. You could still wear it inside the ship. But when you head outside, you're going to need something a little more sophisticated. Oh, wow. So, these are exactly the type of spacesuits needed to walk on the surface of Titan. Does anything immediately jump out about them? Yeah, they're a lot more streamlined than the big puffy suits that astronauts used to wear. Oh, it's like a sort of sci-fi scuba diver outfit. Exactly. And that isn't just a fashion statement. Although, I did take a lot of mirror selfies earlier when I was trying mines on. These suits aren't actually pressurised because the surface pressure out there is a wee bit higher than what we're used to back on Earth. It's worth pointing out, though, that although the surface pressure on Titan's higher, the gravity's a lot lower, so we might not look like the same astronauts who walked on the moon, but we'll definitely bounce around and move a lot like them when we're out there. So, your suit really has two main jobs. The first is to stop you freezing to death, because, as we've already established, it's really cold out there. Temperatures average minus 295 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus 180 degrees Celsius. That makes Antarctica sound like the Caribbean, huh? The second job of your suit is to keep you breathing, because there's no oxygen out there. Not only that, but back in 2012, Cassini actually detected what appeared to be a massive cloud of cyanide gas floating down at the South Pole. Yeah, you probably wouldn't take a lung full of that, would you? Are you sure these suits will work? Have I ever let you down before? Well, there was that time when Okay, so now that we know we're going to be safe out there, let's take a look at some of the places of interest on Titan. This is a map pieced together over the years from satellite images taken by our pal Cassini. So we've talked about how Titan's the only cosmic body aside from Earth itself that we know for sure holds areas of surface liquid. Did either of you notice anything interesting about where these seas and lakes are located? It looks like most of them are gathered around the North Pole. Well spotted. And although there's a handful down in the South Pole, it's the North Pole that definitely looks like a better place to visit for this sort of thing. Up there you've got Kraken Mare and Legia Mare, the two biggest seas on Titan. There's one lake in the south that caught my eye, actually. Ah, I see you're browsing through a popular online encyclopedia website. I am, yeah, but it's just because I recognise the name of this one here, Shoneskeg Lacus. You know, it's named after Loch Shoneskeg in the northwest of Scotland. 
I didn't know that, but it's good to hear that we've taken a small step towards global domination. Oh, some of these other places might interest you guys. So there's the uh, the Aztlan Darklands, the, the Doomon's Mountains. What makes you say that? Well, it all sounds a bit like those places from that tabletop war game you were both playing earlier. Hmm? I vehemently deny those charges. Me too. No idea what you're talking about. Well, fair enough. <laughs> a nice paint job on that orc army though, Colin. Hmm? Anyway, I've been on that popular online encyclopedia website too, and apparently all the mountain ranges on Titan are named after locations in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, my favourite is um, Gandalf Corlews, which um, pretty much means the Gandalf Hills. Aye. Well, on that note, is anyone a fan of Frank Herbert's Dune series? Yeah, I've dabbled with it. There's a place on Titan called Sycon Labyrinthus, named after Sycon Labyrinth. Does that mean there's an actual labyrinth on Titan? I wonder if we'll find David Bowie dancing around in a pair of tights. Apparently a labyrinthus is a complex of intersecting valleys or ridges. And for other Dune references, you've got Arrakis Planitia and Caladan Planitia. Who actually gets to choose these names? Funnily enough, I asked Alex the same question. He said that anyone can name a feature on Titan or anywhere else in the universe as long as there's a good scientific reason for it. Like if you're studying a type of feature and it's really important to have a named example of that kind of thing. Apparently you just submit it to the International Astronomical Union which has a committee that confirms names that were proposed to it. There's a list of guidelines for different kinds of features. For example, the lakes and seas of Titan, they've got to be named after earth lakes of similar size and shape. Alex said that he actually went ahead and did this himself. He named Cayuga Lakeus, which is a lake in the North Polar region. It's got a similar size and shape to Lake Cayuga beside Cornell University where he works. So. Really, if you match what the IEU says, and you're naming a place that hasn't been named yet, then you can go for it. Seemingly there's still plenty of lakes out there that haven't been named yet. <sighs> Lake Sarah. Sarah Lakers. Lakers. It needs to be twinned with a similar feature on Earth, remember? <clears throat> Lakers Sarah Garden Pondus. River Teus Lakers? Oh, I don't actually have a garden pond, sir. Well, I'm sure you'll both come up with a few ideas, but there'll be plenty of time for that when we're having a beer later on. For now though, who wants to get out there and do some extraterrestrial exploration? Yes! Thought you'd never ask. So, between you and me, I didn't really fancy going out there myself. That's why I'm staying here in the warm ship with a nice cup of tea. Besides, I need to orchestrate the podcast and pull everything together. That's why I delegated the task of exploration to Sarah and Colin. Don't worry though, you won't miss any of the action. We'll be in constant communication with the crew via the ship's comms interface whilst they're out there. 
and as well as those specialised suits keeping them from freezing or suffocating to death, we also kitted them out with some audio equipment. A mic and earpiece inside the helmet so we can all talk to each other, and a number of small mics on the outside of the suit to record the ambient sounds of Titan itself. And without digressing too much, that's thrown up an interesting little piece of extra information for us too. Did you know that the way sound works on places other than Earth can vary wildly because of differences in temperature? Here's another clip from my chat with Alex Hayes. Sounds on Titan would sound fundamentally alien. The sound speed is proportional to the square root of temperature, so if you significantly decrease the temperature, you're, 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 the speed of sound goes down. The thicker atmosphere might actually make your vocal cords, for example, uh, vibrate a little bit slower. And so on Titan, sounds would be a little bit more bassy and a little bit uh, drawn out and slower, a little bit lower pitch than we see here on Earth. So if I was able to go out there without my suit on and start talking to you, I'd probably sound like Barry White after a 14-hour smoking session in Amsterdam. Oh yeah. Of course, our human ears are used to sound performing in the same way as it does back on Earth. That's why we'll use a wee bit of audio wizardry to bring the speed and pitch back up to a normal level before you hear it. But if you really do want that completely genuine Titan soundscape experience, just stick your podcast app on half speed for the remainder of the episode. Anyway. Let's get it on. Right, enough of that. You've come here to find out about the mysteries of the universe, not to listen to me trying to sound like a seductive American soul singer. So where are our crew members off to? Well, I decided to send Colin up to the North Polar Region, a place that's often referred to in astronomical circles as the Land O' Lakes. As for Sarah, I wanted her to head out through some of Titan's superbly named regions such as Shangri-La and the Aslan Darklands to get a look at the Doom Mons mountain range. Excited? Me too. But let's give them a wee chance to make their way out there. It's actually quite a long walk for both of them. We'll catch up again in episode 3 and find out what they've seen and what they've learned so far. And not that I'm psychic or anything, but some of that might include things like the mysteries of Titan's hydrocarbon dunes and why there's something a bit alien about them. Does electric snow fall on Titan? In fact, what exactly is electric snow? And while we're at it, what are Titan's magic islands and what's so magic about them? We'll be talking about cryovolcanoes too. And then there's the question of life on Titan. Could it potentially exist here? So does that whet your appetite? Of course it does. You want to pass all this knowledge off as your own when you're down the pub on Friday. But that's fine by me. We've all done it. Just make sure and fire us a wee five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and we'll call it evens. And once you've done that, we'll see you right back here on the surface of Titan for episode three. Thank you very much for listening to Hostile Worlds, a series created and presented by thepodcasthost.com. Voices heard in this episode were by Sarah Golding, Colin Gray and myself, Matthew McLean. 
Also heard were contributions from Alex Hayes of Cornell University and the Cassini Mission to Saturn research team. Special thanks go to Hayden Goodfellow at Kielder Observatory and Mike Malaska at NASA JPL. For show notes, series info and links on where to subscribe, visit us at hostileworlds.net. Thank you.